five, four, three, two, one. Lift off and stop the time. My guest today is Jessica West of Project Plowshares, who is the project manager for the annual Space Security Index. The Space Security Index tracks developments and activities related to, to four indicators of the security of outer space, environmental sustainability, access to and use of space, technologies for space security, and space governance governance to capture long-term changes. Today, we'll discuss several topics from the latest Space Security Index, including space debris, commercial space, space space-based military system, and other important issues. As well, we'll touch on the recent release of Canada's new defense policy. Welcome, Jessica, to Episode 3 of the SpaceQ podcast. Thanks for having me. How about we start with you providing our listeners with an introduction to the Space Security Index? When did it start? Why was it started? Who's involved? That kind of, you know, the basics. That's a great question. This is a fantastic project that was started 15 years ago. Um, The brainchild was really the Department of Foreign Affairs in Canada, who at the time was concerned about stagnation over the ability to adopt new international policies to prevent the weaponization of space. Um, You have to remember we were only a few years out of ideas such as Star Wars in the United States, and at the time Canada was considering whether or not to participate in U.S. ballistic missile defense, which consistently has this um, idea of a space-based component that comes and goes over the years but is always in the background. And the idea is that this project would be used to start thinking about the security of outer space and ways to prevent weaponization, which is a long-standing Canadian goal, in a way that could bring everybody on board. And so the project started with a definition of space security that um, was used to bring everyone around the table. And it's focused on the security of space rather than the security of individual actors in space. And this means the safety and sustainability of operations in the space environment. And that's why we touch on four different areas of security that include the environment, the ability to access space, technologies that might interfere with that access, as well as the collection of international governance mechanisms for maintaining that security. Uh, Since then, we've had a number of different partners that have come and gone. Uh, Today, our core partners remain Project Plowshares, which is where I work. We're a founder of the project, as well as the Institute of Air and Space Law at McGill University. Our primary funder is the Simons Foundation, a wonderful Canadian uh, philanthropic organization. And we also have academic partners in uh, the United States at the Space Policy Institute and in Australia and China who work with us on this every year. That's great. So uh, in reading uh, through the executive summary and then reading through the report, uh, one of the things that uh, really struck out at me um, was the issue of space debris. Uh, In the report, it says uh, the U.S. Department of Defense is using the space surveillance network to track some 23,000 pieces of debris, 10 centimeters in diameter or larger. Uh, Experts estimate that there are more than 500,000 objects with a diameter larger than one centimeter and several million that are smaller. 
what's being done to mitigate the issue of space debris? Well, there's an organization called the IADC, and I'm not going to give you the spelling out of that acronym. I'm having a hard time thinking of that off the top of my head. Um, but basically, there's um, a collection of lead space agencies that got together in the 1990s and drafted best practices towards limiting the amount of debris that is a result of active space missions. And so everything that goes into space ultimately creates some sort of debris, um, um, either through the launch vehicle and its component parts or ultimately the satellite at its end of life term. And so these guidelines were meant to stop what at the time was uh, a rapidly expanding collection of debris and they were um, adopted as well um, at the United Nations and all countries ideally should be following these practices. They're also being promoted um, more rigorously uh, for new and emerging space actors through organizations such as the UN Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, where the mitigation of debris is one of the key foci of current efforts to draft uh, long-term sustainability guidelines for the space environment. So the uh, IADC, which is the Interagency Space Debris Coordination Committee, and I had to look that up, um, that uh, that forum, uh, is it actually uh, uh, an effective means of, of dealing with space debris? I think as a mitigation approach, it's been quite effective. I would say that debris mitigation is really the high mark of outer space governance in the last decade or so. Um, it was actually tasked by the United Nations to draft these mitigation guidelines and, that, and hence they were adopted by the UN itself. Um, I would say a key challenge, though, is that a lot of space debris isn't created by routine space operations. And so the most serious events that have caused significant amount of debris in very popular orbits were the intentional destruction of a satellite by China in 2007, as well as the collision of two satellites in 2009. And it's really events like those that have the potential to really create dire circumstances in space. Um, I think so, the IADC so and the international space community have been fairly good at raising this issue, particularly following the, uh, the Chinese satellite destruction. There has not been activities like that since. And um, I think there's much greater awareness today of the impact that such intentional destructive activities can have on everybody who operates in space. Um, new issues, however, that are coming up include things that I think we'll touch on later, such as mega constellations. And there's a sense now coming out of um, the IADC that current guidelines may not be stringent enough going forward um, if huge numbers of satellites are going to be deployed in the near future. Um, and these are satellites that might not have as long of a lifetime as some of the other larger satellites that we're used to. So we'll have to wait and see, but I anticipate there will be efforts to rethink some of the guidelines going forward. And I think this would be the most appropriate place to do so. 
So um, you mentioned the Chinese anti-satellite uh, test that was conducted, which created a, an ordinary amount of, of space debris. Um, uh, so you're saying that uh, it seems that uh, the space community has basically put a message out to China uh, through the various organizations that this isn't the type of behavior that uh, – uh, anybody you know wants, uh, and you seem to think that that message has been received, and that we may not see another anti-satellite test from them in anytime soon. Um, to be fair, China is not the only country who experiments with anti-satellite technology, um, but I think for countries that rely heavily on outer space, such as China, the United States, Russia, European countries, Canada, um, the idea that some actions you could take uh, for self-defense could have long-term self-defeating consequences is clear. And um, I can't promise there won't be conflict in space. That's one of my key objectives, though. Uh, but I think there is certainly a, a wariness towards undertaking activities that would cause debris to this extent again. Um, the amount of debris that remains in orbit from that test is is still significant, and it's going to be there for a very long time. So th- that brings up a, 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 my next point, which is, it seems to me we have two issues uh, in terms of space debris. We have the debris that's there, and then we have debris that might be created going forward. So let me ask you about the debris that's there now, because I think this is a, a, a critical thing. Uh, for um, some of that debris, uh, through time, it will eventually have their orbit degraded to the point where they wind up being uh, re-entering the Earth's atmosphere and burning up. But there's a lot of debris there. Um, how are we going to deal with it? How should we deal with it? Um, I think prevention is going to be key. And... My sense is that as use of outer space continues to intensify, active debris removal will probably be a necessary next step. Uh, The past year was really exciting Uh, from that perspective. There were a number of different um, technological efforts that went into more of a, a testing phase towards different ideas to start to actively remove uh, debris from outer space, and um, that's sort of a tip. There's been a lot of talking about this over the years, but this year I'd say a tip towards really starting to test these um, these ideas out from a technological perspective. Um, but the key challenge here would be who does it and under what auspice. And so most of these technologies are being uh, tested by companies or by individual nation states, and China is one of them. And yet, as soon as you develop a capability where you would be able to physically remove something from outer space, uh, something that is uncooperative, and so um, concerns start to rise about, well, how else could this technology be used? And by no means are these weapons programs, and yet the security implications mean that I think for something like this to be successful in the long term, there will need to be uh, political transparency, technological transparency, some sort of international agreement on what should be done, how and by whom, and um, probably also an economic rationale. These aren't cheap missions and 
there's really no market for selling space debris at this point, and so how it would be paid for is another question that I think will have to be answered at some point um, before it progresses, but it's on the table, at least from a technology perspective. So you've already talked about what was going to be my next question, which was who's going to pay for it, Uh, and the answer is we don't know at this point, but it seems to me that Um, Space debris is an ongoing issue that's been around a long time uh, and that especially in the the last several years at least, I'm hearing more and more about it. Um, But I keep hearing lots of talk, but not much in the way of action. So, I mean, um, how soon... Uh, do you think, do we have to start dealing with this in a real sense in terms of actually, you know, removing debris? And um, there also, there's also a legal issue of the debris itself. Can you actually touch the debris? Because if it's owned by country X and they have, let's say, some sort of proprietary technology or whatever, they just don't want anybody to touch the debris. How do you deal with that? I'm not a lawyer, so I have no idea. But again, I think this is something that will have to be sorted out, probably not even at the IADC. It would probably have to take place at uh, a multilateral setting, such as uh, the UN Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. That committee has been really fantastic in the last few years in terms of their efforts to tackle some of these really challenging policy questions um, and to set and agree to uh, unanimously uh, best practices in space. But um, through that forum, and they also have a legal subcommittee as well as a technological subcommittee, I think those questions would have to be answered. Uh, you also have to keep in mind that not all not all debris would be proprietary, and so some of the debris is um, pieces of rock and and, and shattered components of space things as well. And then there are the larger pieces that are defunct satellites and whatnot. I did see an interesting presentation recently um, that was talking about ideas to create a market in uh, geo for space debris, somehow um, being able to retool or revamp older satellites and so forth. Uh, Again, there's legal issues about who has ownership, and I don't think there's ever been really transfer of ownership in terms of uh, satellite usages. Uh, But I think what is promising is that so many people are talking about it, and they're getting creative in their thinking. Hi. So moving on to another aspect of uh, the Space Security Index, and you touched on it earlier, uh, which was collisions. Um, uh, According to uh, what I read in the 2016 report, there have been four um, uh, collisions uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, At the same time, there are currently over 1,400 active satellites in orbit. Uh, We now are in a uh, new commercial era where we have companies like OneWeb, which is just about to begin manufacturing its small satellites for its new constellation, and SpaceX, which is also planning to put up its own constellation. And, and I should uh, tell our listeners that these are not small constellations of, let's say, three satellites like Canada's radar satellite, uh, radar sat uh, constellation mission, which is going to launch next year. Uh, these are uh, constellations 
constellations of literally hundreds of satellites to start with, growing into thousands. So we're talking about going from 1,400 active satellites now to maybe adding several thousand more satellites in the course of the next 10 years to that uh, uh, area already. Um, what, what does this mean in terms of um, mitigating uh, space debris by making sure that these satellites uh, don't, you know, I mean, obviously the odds are going to be uh, higher that there might be more collisions. So um, from a policy perspective, um, how are we going to, to deal with this? Yeah, so this issue of uh, new satellite constellations, which isn't a new idea, Um, It was proposed in the 1990s, but didn't really go anywhere. Uh, So some people are still saying this is an if, but if these huge constellations are launched, we're talking about uh, a four-fold increase in some of the popular orbits, I would say in the next five years. Um, And companies like SpaceX are actually proposing up to 7,000 satellites when you include their follow-on constellation, and that's still within less than 10 years. And that's just one of the companies. Um, So this topic is probably number one on a lot of people's minds lately. Um, In terms of debris, that's where there's concern that current mitigation guidelines, uh, for example, the requirement that satellites in low Earth orbit, which is the most popular orbit, and that's where the constellations will mostly be deployed, uh, the requirement that they re-enter Earth's atmosphere, and so cease being in outer space within 25 years, well, if you're talking about thousands and thousands of satellites, then 25 years might not be, um, might be too long in terms of a mitigation capability. And so uh, that's where there are new technologies being explored to sort of deorbit satellites um, passively um, at the end of their life rather than waiting for 25 years before they come down. Um, But from a policy perspective, uh, traffic management is going to become probably a really big headache and possibly a big industry. Uh, Right now, most of that function is carried out by the United States Department of Defense, which has the most substantial space surveillance capability, and it provides uh, conjunction analyses and warnings to operators if they think that a satellite will come into uh, close proximity to another one. the demands for this service have been going up a lot, and so there's an effort underway in the United States to shift this away from the military towards an organization such as the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, it's a huge responsibility, though, to have to provide this kind of traffic management um, really for the entire space community. So where that goes after the FAA, if there's ever a a global approach, um, I'm not sure. I know there are discussions about creating a global registry of space objects or a global space surveillance capability uh, that might pool information. Um, But my sense is that a lot of this responsibility for managing traffic, so for warning operators when there might be a close approach, which gives them time to move their satellite slightly into a, a more safe orbit, I think a lot of that will be taken over by the commercial sector. There's already several different commercial services that have started in the last two or three years um, that are aimed at doing this and at taking over that role from the Department of Defense. 
So, uh, and, and it seems to me that it, it would make, uh, it's in everybody's interest to make sure that nothing collides up there because that just creates uh, even more debris and more potential collisions. So we've talked about collisions. We've talked about the fact that, there, uh, you know, we'll have these uh, potential uh, mega constellations adding that many more satellites to it. Um, the one thing that I found interesting in, another one of the things I found interesting in the index was um, uh, this case of of uh, a satellite, the U.S. Department of Defense's Defense Meteorological Satellite Program F-13 spacecraft, which on February 3rd, 2015, just exploded. And so it turns out from what I read in your report that it appears that it was caused by a nickel-cadmium battery. Um, And this wasn't the first time that one of the DMSP satellites had mysteriously, or at least in the first instance in 2004, mysteriously uh, broken up. So, um, and I also read that there's about seven more of these uh, DMSP satellites in orbit, one of them that's still operational. Should we be worried about these particular satellites and other satellites, which might just because of some sort of uh, uh, misconfiguration just explode and create that much more debris? Yeah, I think legacy hardware failures are a challenge when it comes to debris mitigation. Uh, Another one of those satellites exploded this year, or sorry, in the year that we're reporting on, so in 2016. Uh, So there are now six left in orbit. And what's frustrating about that one is that the satellite wasn't operational. It had been safely shut down, the fuel released, uh, everything that you're supposed to do to make um, a satellite that's no longer operating safer in its environment was done, and yet it still exploded. And um, they're thinking that it was also linked to this battery issue. So that leaves six that are left in orbit. Um, The challenge is that sometimes these problems, they're not known until later. And like most things, um, space systems are built using similar components to one another, especially when you have systems of satellites. And so if you do have a problem like that, it's going to be replicated across the constellation. Um, I don't think there's... I I think we're getting better at building satellites. And um, I'm not sure of too many other legacy issues, although this year we're doing a bit of research on some of the launch challenges that Russia's been having, um, which grounded one of its uh, proton launchers recently this year. And again, that was uh, an issue that caused some debris and also is a legacy issue. Um, As these phase out, hopefully we won't have the challenges anymore, but you never know what new challenges might come out of uh, some of the newer technologies that we're dealing with. I think CubeSats, though, are another big issue that are top of mind Um, in terms of a debris challenge. They're not the large military satellites of the past, but rather these smaller systems that um, have a mixed track record. I think I recently read that about 18% of them are dead within a week of reaching orbit um, because they're something that are launched by universities as well as militaries and civilian space agencies. And so the build quality and technology that goes into them very significantly from user to user. Um, So I think that's going to be an issue that is perhaps more challenging in the future than perhaps uh, some of these older military satellites. So you bring up an interesting issue, the uh, CubeSats. Um, uh, 
most of these CubeSats are in a very low Earth orbit and generally uh, will burn up within either six months or a year and a half, depending on w- which particular orbit they're in. Um, but like you said, some of them fail even before they get started. So if there's no mechanism to steer them once they're out there, they just become a piece of debris that is just waiting to uh, run into something, right? Yeah. Um, now there's efforts to address that issue. Um, and I think one of the technology demonstrations is being done out of the University of Toronto and supported by the Canadian government. But it's the idea that you could have sails or parachutes put on um, on these small satellites that could then be deployed at the end of life. They don't require something like a motor or a propulsion system in order to pull them back into Earth orbit. And so they could deorbit quite quickly um, without really self uh, in a very mechanical way uh, without requiring any sort of operator to make sure that it happens. And I think that's really a great step forward on making sure that the environment is sustainable in the long run. Because there's a huge upside to CubeSats. They've really allowed a lot of interesting experiments to take place and new actors such as university, um, university departments and smaller emerging space programs to get experiencing accessing space and using things in space and that's important as well so uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, space situational awareness in terms of Canada and what Canada has been doing Um, in 2012 uh, Canada launched the near-earth object surveillance satellite NEOSAT uh, as it's called and and this satellite was being touted as being the world's first experimental microsatellite designed to detect and track space objects debris and satellite uh, is NEOSAT uh, itself making a difference? Yes, it feeds directly into the U.S. Space Surveillance Network, which um, is the most comprehensive collection of data on objects in outer space. And because it's space-based, it has a capability to pick up and see and identify things that ground-based radars might not be able to do um, as easily. Uh, But yeah, it's directly integrated with that system. I think it's a key way that Canada contributes to space surveillance and to transparency in outer space and safety in outer space, and also um, participates with uh, a key Canadian partner, the United States. So uh, you mentioned uh, the U.S. space network, but if I understand correctly, there's also the Canadian space surveillance system, um, which NEOSAT, I assume, is a part of, uh, but also SAFIRE, which was the first dedicated military satellite. Canadian military satellites launched in 2013. Are there any other components to this Canadian space surveillance system at present, or uh, is this something that we're slowly building up capability in? Um, I would say this is something we're slowly building up capability in, and not... uh independently, but also in cooperation with key partners, um, such as the United States, um, but other partners that participate and that are developing sort of integrated approaches to this would include um, traditional military partners, such as Australia and the United Kingdom. And so Canada, the United States, Australia and the United Kingdom um, work very well together on this topic. Um, 
it is something that I think is going to continue to be a priority of the Canadian government. And I think we can anticipate additional investment on that, which is flagged certainly in the new um, Canadian defence policy as a priority. And I think it's a good one. I think it's one of the best ways that Canada really can contribute to space security. So speaking of that, last week, the government released uh, the new defence policy with a believe $62 billion uh, worth of spending over the next 20 years. Uh, In it, it said, uh, and related to the space portion of uh, the policy, uh, to keep pace, Canada must develop advanced space and cyber capabilities and expand cutting-edge research and development. Uh, It also said uh, that Canada would acquire space capabilities meant to improve situational awareness and targeting, including the replacement of the current radar sat system to improve the identification and tracking of threats and improve situational awareness of routine traffic in and through Canadian territory, sensors capable of identifying and tracking debris in space that threatens Canadian and allied space-based systems, and space-based systems that will enhance and improve tactical, narrow, and wideband communications globally, including throughout Canada's Arctic region. Um, So that's pretty broad. Um, There's not much detail other than these few mentions about space and the defense policy. Um, And they did say that there would be a follow-on to the Radarsat 2. We know that that's the Radarsat Constellation mission, which is currently uh, the three satellites that are being built uh, as we speak and will be ready for launch next year. Um, What do you think of the new defense policy and its aspects for space? Does it meet our needs? Uh, Will it help make space uh, more secure? I think so. I was waiting a little bit apprehensively before it was released just to see what was going to be in it. I participated in the consultation review process last summer and um, provided my two cents on how Canada should protect its assets in outer space. Uh, From an investment perspective, though, I think that Canada is on the right track. We're not a huge country. Um, We're not in a position where we're going to field large military systems that are independent of our allies. Um, And in outer space, you don't have to do that. If you have partners and friends and allies that are operating in outer space, um, there's certainly room to cooperate on the use of assets such as communications capabilities, GPS, and so forth. Um, I think what stands out in this policy, and rightly so, is the need to have Canadian capabilities that would provide um, service related to the Arctic. And so that is going to be different than the needs of a lot of our allies um, around the world. And I think that's why you see a focus on that from an investment perspective. Um, And that's both uh, situational awareness, uh, so radar and and optical uh, reconnaissance satellites that you can see things that are happening on the ground, on Earth, and in remote places such as the Arctic, and as well as communications capabilities. Um, But for the most part, I think pursuing the ability to collaborate um, and to be interoperative with existing military capabilities in space is the way to go. And then to focus on filling in some of these gaps that might exist and that might be particular to Canadian defense needs such as the Arctic. Yeah, the Arctic's actually a a very good point because, um, you know... (laughs) 
Canada is a very large country. The Arctic is a large area that is, for the most part, uh, unpopulated, uh, very sparsely populated. I've been there several times myself to the high Arctic. Um, and uh, a few years ago, or several years ago, there was uh, a project called the Polar Communications and uh, Weather Concept, uh, which was uh, this uh, constellation of two satellites that would have provided communication and better uh, way- weather data. Um, I'm sort of get- taking it from this uh, defense policy that we're going to go ahead with a follow-on of that uh, concept uh, called the Enhanced Satellite Communications Project program Polar, uh, when they've called it Escape, or the Escape Project. Um, so uh, it's projects like that that you're talking about that we need that actually enhance both space situational awareness, but also enhance security of Canada's north. Yeah, and hopefully those are also projects, um, particularly things such as weather forecasting in the Arctic, that would be of benefit to people living there, as well as um, to national security in terms of defending sovereignty and so forth. Um, But those are in many ways unique to Canada and a few other countries that obviously share the Arctic with us. um, And it really is um, on Canada to be able to produce those capabilities in those regions. Um, And it's not something that that you're going to have done by by allies. So uh, one area of technology which is quite fascinating and from what I understand uh, could be a real game changer is quantum encryption. Um, just recently the Chinese have completed and supposedly successfully uh, they conducted an on-orbit quantum encryption of two photons which were beamed to Earth. Um, and of course the premise for this is that um, and I suppose it's a, it has both good and bad, depending on your perspective. But from the, the positive side of things, you know, we're worried about satellites getting hacked. Um, with quantum encryption, I understand at this stage, it's essentially unhackable. So um, in this year's budget and in previously, Canada has been interested in uh, quantum encryption. Uh, where you're based in Waterloo, Kitchener-Waterloo area, obviously we have the perimeter Institute of Theoretical Physics. You also have the University of Waterloo's uh, Institute of Quantum Computing, and they're working on the Quantum Encryption and Science Satellite KeySat mission. Do you see Canadian efforts in quantum encryption yielding results that will help in securing satellite communications? I would hope so. Um, Because I'm in Waterloo, I, I hear a lot about the work that's going on in quantum. I can't explain it. We might have to ask Prime Minister Trudeau to do that again. Um, But I've heard it's a game changer in terms of the ability to interfere with the transmission of information. And that really is the weak underbelly. I mean, they say space is the weak underbelly of um, militaries, but the satellite communications are the weak underbelly of those space systems. And interference um, with those communications is Uh, ongoing. You don't hear very much about it, but it's the most prevalent way in which um, sort of interference or denial of capabilities and other troublesome activities related to space security um, unfold behind the scenes. And I think the ability to secure um, the transmission of data would be incredible. 
Um, and it would really be a step towards a resilience approach to protection, which is something that the Canadian policy also highlights. And I think Canada is really bang on when they focus on um, on this as an approach to enhancing the security of Canada in space, um, because it's really the only way to go. I mean, I know the... The policy is called strong, secure, and engaged. Um, but in space, it's really hard to be strong, but you can be smart. And I think quantum is a really smart way of moving forward on um, protecting satellite communications and the really sensitive data that is relayed by them. So I've got a couple more questions, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Um, okay. In your... Um in the index, you talk about radio frequency spectrum and orbital positions as one of your uh, themes. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about what's going on in, in the radio frequency spectrum, which is a concern for security? Um, sure. Again, it's hard to explain technically since I'm not a technical person. Um, but like all, basically this section deals with what are considered the natural resources of outer space. And um, those are the things that we use in order to be able to operate. And radio frequency is something that is a limited resource. And with growing use of outer space, there's high, uh, more demand to use uh, the portions of the radio frequency spectrum that are available from outer space. And... Um, when you have too much crowding or overuse, uh, you run into issues of interference, and that can take up a lot of time and energy from companies to identify sources of interference and to sort it out with other operators, um, and that's beyond the challenge of intentional interference, um, which we cover in another section. Um, every four or five years, the World Radio Communications Group of the International Telecommunications Union gets together to um, sort through new allocations and policies towards radio frequency use. Um, the last one was in 2015. I think this is becoming more of an issue, again, going back to the question of proposals for very large constellations um, of satellites. Uh, most of these are actually to provide broadband internet service, and so they are communications satellites. And generally, communications satellites are located in geostationary orbit, and obviously there are communication services that uh, are provided on Earth, terrestrial services. And there's sort of concerns and trepidation that there might be greater interference by having these um, these satellites use some of the same radio frequency bands while operating in low Earth orbit. Um, again, it's a technical challenge. There's a lot of technical solutions being proposed beyond divvying up different bands for different uses. Um, some of the new proposals coming out by companies like Boeing for their constellations talk about making use of new areas of spectrum that uh, space operators haven't been using in the past, things like Q-band and V-band. Um, so we'll see where that goes. Um, and then there's also technology being developed by organizations like DARPA in the U.S. military to use AI as a way to identify where there might be excess capacity in a certain frequency spectrum and to basically take a, a smarter approach to using it and making sure that it's used more efficiently, which would, again, allow more users to operate more securely. 
Um, otherwise, it's kind of a, a challenging technical issue that really can only progress well, I think, if everyone works together and adopts shared rules and can agree on uses. So I suppose that goes to my last question. Um, countries independently set national space policies. Uh, Canada is in the midst of uh, evaluating uh, a new space strategy uh, that uh, is supposed to come out uh, this month. Um, on the international, I mean, we're, we're getting close to the 50th anniversary of the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, is it time? Is it time to... Um, uh, have a, a more concerted effort uh, internationally to sort of sync up uh, some policies and maybe revise the Outer Space Treaty? Uh, yes, we hosted a fantastic panel on exactly this topic a few weeks ago in Montreal. Um, I don't think we need to revise the Outer Space Treaty. It's a remarkably successful document. Um, and it's aged very well, but there are questions to be sorted out legally at the global level. And I think, um, going back to your point about national policy, one concern that I would have, and I think that comes out somewhat in the index, is the growing importance of national policies to govern outer space um, compared to inaction at the global level. And so you have a number of countries that are adopting new national policies on things such as the extraction of resources from outer space. Um, that includes the United States, and now we have Luxembourg, and I've heard the UAE is also in the midst of drafting its policies. Um, at the same time, there's no international agreement about how the Outer Space Treaty might apply to this kind of activity. There's disagreements and um, what the rules might be, how conflicts would be managed, and so forth. Um, so you sort of have countries that are racing ahead of the international agenda. And I think at the international level, really there is a, an onus to catch up and to deal with these issues and to try to agree globally to solutions going forward because outer space is a global domain. It's not owned and cannot be owned by any one country. Um, you see a similar challenge when it comes to ideas of uh, military operations in outer space. And so there's a growing sense by a number of countries that they see outer space as a domain of warfare. And that is something that also is not directly mentioned, but also not really in the spirit of the outer space treaty. And so I think the need for the international community to start talking about these issues and thinking about ways in which to prevent the use of force or active conflict in outer space is really critical, um, just because so many countries are dealing with these issues on a national level. Thank you, Jessica, for being our guest today. Uh, it was a pleasure to uh, get your insights onto this very important issue. Uh, I hope that at a later date, we'll be able to get you back on the show to keep discussing some of these issues. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been fun. And I'll just let you know that the Space Security Index 2017 version will be released early this fall by the end of September. So that might be a good point to touch base and to raise awareness about our work. That's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q Podcast. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. 
You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter, at Canada in Space. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined.